Right, well, good morning, friends. It's good to see you all. Uh, and welcome to the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, Advent, if you're not aware, uh, is a, a word that essentially means uh, coming. And so the season of Advent is one where we look back to the coming of Jesus, Jesus' birth, the, the initial arrival, if you will, of God uh, in the person of Jesus. Uh, but we also sit in the space where we look towards uh, what we might call the, the second coming of Jesus, where um, all of the things that we put our hope and trust and faith in, of the, the restoration that we long for, where we, we believe that that will come on earth as it is in heaven. And so uh, Advent is this time where we sit in this like in-between of the, the kingdom, as we, we call it, uh, uh, having already come and yet not yet fully come. Now, Advent is the beginning of the Christian calendar, uh, so Happy New Year to you. Um, and I, man, every year it just it just catches me how like I don't know scandalous it is that like we don't begin our year with like all sorts of fireworks and fanfare, but we begin with a season that's filled with a lot of waiting. <laughs> we begin with waiting. And in a world of, like, uh, Amazon Prime, where, like, I'm like, oh, two days? I have to wait two days for something? Like, there's something really just um, countercultural and, I think, uh, really good for our souls in the midst of that. So uh, we're starting a new sermon series called Restoration is Near. Um, again, Teresa touched on restoration, so I'll, I'll spare you. We'll get into that a bit, too, in our sermon. So as so we get ready to jump into our sermon, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Loving God, uh, thank you for the gift of uh, this community. Uh, thank you for the gifts that we have to gather with one another uh, to learn about you and what it means to be human from one another. Uh, thank you also for uh, the scriptures. And as we uh, turn to them now and wrestle with them together, um, we acknowledge that your spirit is here among us and we yield ourselves to your spirit. And ask that your spirit lead us, guide us, shape us, inform us more and more into the way of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, there are a few phrases throughout scripture that like stop me in my tracks and like cut me to the core. And that's saying something because I am the type of person that feels very comfortable living totally within the confines of my mind. So for something to like uh, subvert my default operating system and go like straight to my heart, like that's a significant sort of thing, right? And one of these phrases that stops me in my track and cuts me to the core is this phrase, how long, O oh Lord? I mean, you can like feel like the author's angst within that, right? Like, there, there's something tangible within this phrase of how long, O oh Lord, that like speaks to the core of who we are as human beings. And I think this angst that the author has, that they're communicating here, is it's so simple, but it's so human, and it's so universal, right? I think part of the reason why uh, this phrase uh, stops me in my tracks and cuts me into the core is because I've had my, my fair share of these how long, oh Lord, moments, right? I think back to uh, when I was 15 and um, my dad, uh, who had been fighting cancer for a year or two up to this point, uh, is sitting in a hospital bed, a shell of what he once was. Um, and he sits there for 
an entire month, and every day the hospice nurse comes in and says, it could be any day now. And over the course of those, that year or two, and especially over the course of the, those 30 days, this prayer is like all that I can muster up of how long, O oh Lord. I felt it um, just a little over a year after that as well, uh, as I sat in the ER with my mom, uh, who had been sick for uh, a couple weeks up to that point. Um, and in comes uh, the doctor and says, I'm sorry, Miss Swanson, you have cancer. And so for the next nine months, it was treatment and surgery, treatment and surgery, and then eventually her own death. And over the course of those nine months, thinking about my dad and uh, and the months that would follow as I think about what it means to be 17 and having no parents, like this phrase, how long, oh Lord. I think about this phrase often uh, when I come to the the reality of my own sort of humanness, the limits of like my capabilities, um, my own sorts of personal struggles, my own sorts of personal sins, the moments where I realize, where I feel like I should be farther along than this. And I cry out, how long, O Lord? But because this is such a human sort of uh, cry, because it's such a universal sort of cry, I know I'm not alone in that. And you probably have had your fair share or are currently in your own sort of how long, O Lord, moments. I mean, we're on the heels of Thanksgiving, and like this is just a way too easy sort of joke to make, right? Like Many of us come out of these sorts of experiences like... We either head into these experiences or leave out of these experiences with the sense of, like, how long, oh Lord? There's family dysfunction, there's family conflict, and, like, I love my family, I want to be con- connected with my family, but I don't know how to do that, and how long until this thing gets worked out? Uh, maybe you uh, have some sort of chronic illness, and you have a lot of really bad days, but you have a lot of really good, or, but you have a few good days, and the good days are almost worse because, like, when that comes crashing down, you remember what it was like to feel good, and you cry out, how long, oh Lord? Or maybe uh, you're just well aware of all of the, the injustice uh, in the world, and as you read these headlines, you cry out, how long, oh Lord? How long until human beings who bear your own image refuse to stop doing these sorts of things to other humans who bear your image? How long, oh Lord? Whatever it might be, um, I think we can all relate to the angst that comes within this phrase of how long, O Lord? When, O God, will you show up and do something? When will you uh, make all of this pain and suffering and injustice and set it to right? When will you show up and do something about it all? One of the things that I uh, love most about scripture uh, is it's like sort of raw, unfiltered honesty in the face of the pain and the suffering and injustice of the world around us. Um, and, one of the way, and one of the places that we see that is in the, uh, the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, now, there's not a whole lot known about the prophet Habakkuk. Um, scholars deduce that like, he was alive sometime in the midst of this shifting geopolitical landscape that we've been talking about the last few weeks. So you have Assyria, this big bad uh, neighbor of the people of God, and they have covered much of the, the known world, taken over much in the known world, including Israel, the northern kingdom. Forced migration, forced deportation, forced exile of the northern kingdom, and yet they never got their hands fully on Judah, the southern kingdom. But around the time of Habakkuk's um, prophetic ministry, 
a, a new sort of foreign uh, superpower has risen to prominence, and that's the nation of Babylon. And they've captured uh, Assyria, and unlike what Assyria couldn't do to Judah, they will eventually capture Judah and do the same to them that they did to Israel. And so it's in the, the midst of this sort of like fear and uncertainty that the prophet, the prophet, the prophet Habakkuk uh, writes this. He says, how long, O Lord, shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? He opens with this prayer, how long, O Lord? And we get the sense that like there's this mixture of like exasperation and desperation, right? Exasperation, like he's at the end of his rope and like doesn't have any other sort and doesn't have any sort of energy to muster up anything else. But he's also at the end of his rope and like doesn't know where else to turn. And so he turns all of this angst towards God. But notice that like um, the attention of this how long, O Lord prayer is like, it's not like these are like flippant requests. Like, can I get a Christmas bonus or whatever that might be, right? Like, He's talking about like crying out for help and nobody listening. <laughs> He's talking about like crying out in the midst of violence and nobody coming to save him. He's talking about like being forced to look at wrongdoing and looking at trouble. Like these are not flippant sort of requests. And yet, it appears that there's silence. This prayer of how long, O oh Lord, is what we might call like an honest sort of prayer. Now, these honest sorts of prayers are like saturated throughout the scriptures. Like we see these sorts of honest prayers everywhere. In fact, like the book of Psalms, like the, the prayer book, the song book of the very scriptures themselves have this own sort of subcategory called Psalms of Lament, where we see this, these sorts of brutally honest prayers all throughout them. In fact, we even see within the very lips of Jesus as he's hanging on the cross, him calling out one of these honest sorts of prayers of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so if you find yourself in a moment where you are, are, are calling out to God, crying out to God, angry with God, calling for God to account for God's actions or worse yet, inaction in your life or in the world around you, like you're in good company because the scriptures are filled with people who are crying out to God in the midst of the same sorts of situations. Now, I don't know why God often feels silent in the midst of these um, sorts of situations. But I do know like, it's really frustrating, right? <laughs> when you're turning to Almighty God and expecting Almighty God to show up and do something because, well, that's what Almighty God should be doing and God doesn't seem to respond in some way, like, that can be a really frustrating situation. I was at a, a conference a couple weeks ago and I, somebody was uh, speaking on this idea of God's silence. And they said, what if God's silence doesn't necessarily equate to God's absence? But what if God's silence was actually God actively listening and giving us space to pour out our heart upon God? And that totally shifted all of this. <laughs> because God's like a good therapist then, right? <laughs> Sitting in that sort of pregnant pause, waiting for more to come out, right? And if this is like how God is, and if this is the role of honest prayers, then I think that this suggests that honest prayers, contrary to popular belief, doesn't actually constitute like a lack of faith on our part. Like to call out to God and ask God to do something or call God to account for what God has done or not done 
isn't actually like a lack of faith, but rather I think these honest prayers uh, point us towards like an honest pursuit of faith. The sense that like God can and should do something about the injustice in the world. And like calling God to account for that is like all that our faith is about. And if honest prayers are part of an honest pursuit of faith, then I want to suggest that maybe honest prayers are a symbol of like hope. Because these honest prayers refuse to accept things for the way that they are, but demand God to show up and do something that we uh, believe God should be doing in the midst of these painful and broken situations. Which brings us uh, to the end of Habakkuk's opening complaint against God. Habakkuk says, I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. We get the sense that uh, Habakkuk has like poured out his heart and then he stands like this, like, go ahead, God, your move now. And so God answers. And we're told, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that a runner may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and it does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come It will not delay. But that begs the question of like, what is this vision, right? Seems to be a very important part of this whole response from God. So what is this vision? I think this vision is the same as all other visions of God throughout scripture. And it's the same as the grand vision of God and scripture. It's a vision of restoration. Uh, It's a vision of healing. It's a vision of the pain and suffering and injustice in our world being set right. Dare we say it's a vision of hope. And God says to Habakkuk, write it down on a tablet so that other people can see it. In the midst of all that is breaking around you, be able to to share this with others. Because if it seems to tarry, like wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not delay. And at the end of this, God says, look at the proud. Their spirit is not right within them, but the righteous live by their faith. There seems to be this uh, comparison and contrast between the the proud and the righteous. And we we get the proud, right? These are the people that come across a little bit arrogant, like do it by themselves. Like I don't need nobody to help me, that sort of thing, right? Um, Like we see this in the news all the time with the Elon Musk of the world, the Jeff Bezos, the whatever big politician is uh, leading the way, way, right? These are the proud. We get the proud. But righteousness, that's that's a hard word to totally understand, right? So when we think about righteousness, we think about it as like putting things to rights. That's that's what righteousness is, is the sort of like pursuit of putting things to rights. So the righteous then, as we see in this passage, are those that are committed to putting things to right. They're, they're people who are committed to seeing like their inner world and both the outer world be put to rights, to be brought into alignment with God's vision of healing and hope in our world. And so for the righteous then, who live by faith, they live with this sort of conviction that things can actually be put to rights. Not this sort of like, it is what it is, but this like sense of conviction that like moves them in the world to say that God can and will indeed someday show up and do something about it. And so the, the, the righteous who live by faith are those that are committed to putting things to rights, convicted that things can be put to rights. And once again, like the righteous are those that are marked by hope. 
Because they refuse to like give in and say that the way that things are are the way that they will always be. But instead they lean into this reality that things can and will indeed be made right one day. Now, uh, Jesus uh, seems to pick up this idea of righteousness and hope uh, later on in his Beatitudes. So in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount, which is like this beautiful core teaching of Jesus uh, as he's talking about the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus opens uh, this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount with these beatitudes, like these radical blessings, where he says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness and justice sake. And we look at this and we go, hmm. I don't know that those, that, that's who's described as blessed in our world, right? <laughs> The default sort of posture of blessedness in our world, again, is like the proud, the arrogant, those that do it themselves, those that say, I don't need nobody's help, those that pull themselves up by their bootstraps, the Elon Musk, the Jeff Bezos, the politicians of the world, right? Like this is the default sort of posture in our world that we say these are the blessed people because like, well, their bank account's very large, right? (laughs) But Jesus comes forth and offers what we might call like these alternative sort of postures in the world. And he says that those that bear these alternative postures and lean into these alternative postures are those that are actually considered blessed. Which leads us to the question of why are they blessed? Because it's a real (laughs) head-scratcher. As I've sat with this, because the Beatitudes, if you don't know, are like this really big thing within Jesus' teaching. I've sat with them for a long time, and I've asked this question of like, why are they blessed? I've begun to realize the reason why they're blessed is because they're in on the secret. (laughs) And what I mean by this is that there's like this reality, capital R reality, that's beyond our current small r, lowercase reality. That there's this, this thing that's happening that we call the kingdom of God, this thing that we call restoration that's happening, even though the world may not always see it or recognize it or believe in it. And so when we have those that exist within this sort of default posture, like they're woven into... Uh, the values and the DNA of the world as it is, which is this lower R, lowercase r reality. But Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God as this reality that's beyond this current reality. And those that live into this, they're blessed because they're in on the secret. And so Jesus uses this word righteousness uh, twice within the Beatitudes. So at one point he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we ask Why? Because they're in on the secret. These are people who have like this aching within their gut that the world can and should be made right. And they live into this reality. And Jesus says like, you're blessed because you're in on the secret. Because you understand that there's something about the world being set right that like should create this sort of ache and hunger within us. And because of that, like when this kingdom comes to fruition, like you will find that desire filled. At the end of this list, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Now this begs a real question of why, because like to be persecuted, to have the cards stacked against you, like that's not a sort of posture that feels comfortable. And yet Jesus says that these people are blessed because they're in on the secret. They understand that like this sort of pursuit of putting the world to right is worth whatever sort of costs come against them. 
And they seem to have this sort of conviction that the very kingdom of God is theirs. Like they have their hands on this thing. Like they're stakeholders within this kingdom of restoration. And so it's worth whatever sort of cost may come in this pursuit of setting things right. See, both of these sorts of righteousness uh, blessings are considered blessed because they pursue hope even in the face of hopelessness. They understand that there's a big R reality beyond this lowercase r reality, and they choose to live into it. We might even say that blessed are those who hold on to hope because they are in on the secret. Blessed are those, blessed are you when you hold on to hope because you, like Habakkuk, have seen a vision of restoration, of healing, of pain and suffering and injustice in this world being set right. And yet, even in the midst of all that the world has to offer, or in the midst of the worst that the world has to offer, you hold on to that hope, leaning into it, working to see things set right. And blessed are you because you're in on the secret that this is where this whole thing is headed. I have a, a number of people in my life who are uh, going through a bit of like a faith crisis. And um, a number of them have actually gotten to a place where like, I think they would say like they've lost their faith. Um, and uh, it's been really sad for me to like uh, kind of journey through this with them. And not sad and like they lost their faith and whatever sort of theological implications may come with that, but sad and like, the fact that in the process of losing their faith, they've also lost their hope. And as I interact with them, like, I see the weight that they carry with this. Like, they have this sense that like, this, there's no sort of arc to the world that we live in. There's no sort of like, bigger story that's happening. It's just like, this sense that like, what's happening is what's happening, and that's like, the end of the story. They've slipped into a, a, a philosophical worldview called nihilism, if you will. The sense that, like, it's all meaningless. So, like, why do we care? Like, the whole thing's burning down anyway, so let's just wash our hands of it and do what we can to survive. Um, and it's a really sad sort of uh, posture to live into the world in, right? Um, shortly after I was uh, talking with one of uh, these people in my life, uh, I came across something that uh, uh, an author and pastor named Brian Zahn wrote. He said... Either we have a meta-narrative, meaning like a bigger overarching story that guides and shapes our life. Uh, either we have a meta-narrative to interpret our experience and provide a powerful framing story, or we are left staring into the awful abyss of nihilism. Do you know a better story than the gospel story of how Jesus Christ saves the world? I do not. Man, that quote like jumped off the screen at me when I saw it. And I've, I've really wrestled with this for a while. Uh, I have a, a friend who's a, a committed Christian and jokes that uh, he's, he's an atheist like once a week. Um, and I think that's funny. And I also think it's very true. And I will confess, I might dabble in atheism once a week, all right? Um, and it, it really is to this point where like things just don't seem like there's any sort of hope. <laughs> And I, I get to this place where I'm like, does any of it matter? Like, is there anything beyond any of this? Is there really a God? Like, you know, all of those sorts of existential crises. And yet, like, in the midst of that, like, I feel the weight of hopelessness. And I think because of, like, my once a week dabbling in atheism, like, it's actually made me a stronger and more committed Christian. Because I've gotten a glimpse of what that awful abyss of nihilism looks like. And in those moments, I refuse to give in to that awful abyss. But instead, 
I cling to the story of Jesus. I cling to the story of hope. Because, my friends, blessed are those who hold on to hope because they're in on the secret. And so, my friends, uh, wherever you may find yourself today, um, whatever your how long, O oh Lord, prayer might have been or might currently be, may you know that these sorts of honest pursuits don't mark like a lack of faith in your part, but actually mark an honest pursuit of faith on your part. That these honest sorts of prayers actually symbolize hope in your life. And may you know that if you hold on to hope that you are considered blessed because you're in on the secret. And may we as a community hold on to hope for others who are facing the most difficult, painful experiences in this world, crying out, how long, O Lord? Because there's nobody better to share a secret with than friends. Amen.